Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The first visit I would make if I were elected president would be to Europe to say, we are here to defend Western democracy. We're with you. We don't view you as some sort of liability, but together we have to push back on Russia, on China. Putin and Xi both would like to see Donald Trump reelected because they have been able to enhance their roles in the world as a result of Donald Trump being elected. And to paint us as a failing democracy. And to paint us as a failing democracy. And four more years of that is probably really good from their point of view. And whether we like it or not, we are in a contest with China for the future of the world. And they are acting like that, and we are not. Michael Bennett is a United States senator from Colorado. He is a member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and a Democratic candidate for President of the United States. Before Senator Bennett began his tenure in the Senate, he served as the superintendent of the Denver Public School System. I had a chance to sit down with Senator Bennett to discuss his views on the U.S. role in the world and how he would handle the plethora of national security issues if he were elected president. We hope that this will be the first of a number of interviews with candidates running for president. We'll be right back with our discussion with Senator Bennett after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Senator Bennett, welcome to the show. It is great to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. I should tell our listeners that we have made the offer to many of the candidates running for president to come on the show to discuss foreign policy and national security. And Senator Bennett, you're the first to say yes, so thank you very much. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm sure the others will be here. 
Senator, I do want to talk about foreign policy and national security, but I'd like to start somewhere else, and that's with our own politics, which looks to many people, including me, like it's broken. And the reason I want to talk about it is because I believe that doing what we need to do in the world to keep our country safe is not going to happen unless we fix our own house, unless we get our own house in order. So perhaps the most important question that I'm going to ask you in the next 40 minutes or so is, what is ailing American politics and what would you do if elected to fix it? And I should mention before you answer that you just wrote a book about this very issue, which I found very interesting. It's titled The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in the Age of Broken Politics. Thank you very much for reading it. Um, Our politics is broken. And I think it's important to understand that Donald Trump is a symptom of those broken politics rather than the essential cause of those broken politics. Why is it broken, you ask? One reason has nothing to do with politics. It's economics. 50 years of an American economy where all of the growth has gone to the top 10% of the American people and 90% of the American people basically haven't seen a pay increase. So if you ask Uh, me, to summarize for you my last 10 years of town halls, it's very simple. It's people coming saying, we're working really hard, but we can't afford some combination of housing, health care, higher education, early childhood education. In other words, we can't afford a middle-class life. We can't save anything for our kids. And when people are under that kind of stress and feeling that sort of compression, um, it makes it difficult for them to think about other things. If I think about the families I used to work for in the Denver Public Schools when I was the school superintendent, who are mostly kids of color and mostly kids living in poverty, what their families would say is, we're killing ourselves. And they are. They're working two and three jobs. We're killing ourselves. And no matter what we do, we can't get our kids out of poverty. And and the sense among the American people was that Washington wasn't paying any attention to that. Whether we elected Democrats or Republicans, nothing ever changed. And so there was a sense among some people, let's elect this reality TV star. Things can't possibly get any worse. Of course, we know they have gotten worse. Um, and which brings me to my second uh, observation, which is that at the same time we were coming to the end of that, hopefully the end of that 50 years of a lack of economic mobility, our institutions were crumbling under the pressure of uh, the collapse of uh, print journalism. Um, the Supreme Court's terrible decision in Citizens United, which gave billionaires the keys to the kingdom when it came to running our democracy. Excessive gerrymandering that that created, helped fuel the rise of the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party. The billionaires helped fuel that rise too, which grew out of a reactionary politics um, that, that occurred after the election of President Barack Obama. And all of that taken together uh, has sort of conspired to create a situation where uh, Washington, D.C. is broken. It's a better way of saying it than our politics, because I think at the local level, our politics Mm. still works. Here, it doesn't work. So if I could just, if you'll just indulge me for one more second. The other day in Des Moines, a woman asked me, uh, can democracy, and her question was, can Western democracy address climate change? And I said to her, you have just asked the most existential question anybody has asked me, because... Our institutions are in rubble today, and that suits Mitch McConnell's purposes and Donald Trump's purposes because all they want to do is uh, 
put right-wing judges on the courts and occasionally cut taxes for wealthy people. If you want to solve climate change, you need to imagine a politics where you're not just putting something in for two years and the other side rips it out. And you put it in for two years, the other side rips it out. You can't solve climate two years at a time. In the end, we actually need something called an American climate policy like we used to have something called American foreign policy. But when you look at our politics smashed into smithereens, it's very hard to imagine how you how you do that. And it's one of the reasons I'm running for president, because I believe the only way to do that is to create a constituency for change out in America that says we, we will come together to support durable solutions to the problems that we face. And as we're doing that, we're going to reform our democracy to get the money out of it and put more people into it. We are under deep stress and your intuition that we can't solve the issues that we confront internationally with the broken political system, I think is correct. So, Senator, let's shift to foreign policy and national security, which is what this show is all about. And maybe the place to start is with your own interest in the world. You did not have a lot of jobs that were directly related to foreign policy in your career, but your father was a diplomat and you do serve on the Senate Intelligence Committee. So I'd love to ask you two questions. What did you learn from your father about the world and America's role in the world? And what have you learned from serving on the Intelligence Committee about that? So I was, uh, as a result of my father's service, I was born in New Delhi, India, first of all. And uh, and from him, I learned that public service is noble, which I think is a very important thing for us uh, to understand at this moment when it's being denigrated by the Trumpian wing of the Republican Party. Uh, and um, and second, I learned from him that the world is interconnected and that um, America has a particularly unique role to play in our expression of uh, pluralistic values and democratic values, small d democratic values. I should say, and it would be incomplete an incomplete answer if I didn't say this, I also, my mother's side of the family had a very different set of circumstances than my dad's. She and her parents were Polish Jews who survived the Holocaust, who immigrated here when she was about 11. She was the only one in the family that could speak English. She enrolled herself in school, and um, I've never met anybody with stronger accents than my grandparents had, and I've never met greater patriots than they were. So the combination is the reason that I'm in public service to begin with. And what I've learned by being in the Intelligence Committee, I would say two things. One, how dangerous the world is that we live in. Two, the incredible capacity that we have to confront that danger. And three, how committed the men and women are of our intelligence agencies to keeping this country safe, even at a moment when they're under attack by the president of the United States. They are showing up to go to work every day to to act in the national security interests of our country. So we've seen a lot of erosion of capacity in the State Department, for example. Yeah. Have we seen that in the intelligence community or not? I don't think to the same degree, but I do think my impression is that it's harder to hire people than it used to be uh, and, that they're, and it's harder to find talent. On the State Department, I met with one of the best-known toughest ambassadors that we've ever had, a guy who served in Iraq and Afghanistan within the last year. And at the end of our meeting, he said, I'm going to the State Department. I said, why are you going to the State Department? And he said, I'm going there because every single senior foreign service officer has two jobs now. One job is doing their job. And the other job 
is doing whatever they can do to keep junior mm. foreign service officers from quitting. And that's a terrible legacy of this mm. Trump era and of of Mike Pompeo's um, Secretary of State tenure. And now that we've got, you know, this clear manipulation of the Ukraine situation for partisan political purposes, that's only going to further cast a pall, I yeah. think. I have to tell you, I have a, there's a coffee shop halfway between my house and the CIA, and I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of coffees with current intelligence officers who want to know, okay, how do you make the transition to the private sector? Yeah. And, and my answer to them is, don't go anywhere. Your country needs you now more than ever. And it's true, and they need to hear that from everybody. So how did you end up on the Intelligence Committee? I, I wanted to be on it because um, I'd been in the Senate for 10 years, and I thought it was important. I, did, I was not on uh, a, a committee that gave me international exposure, and I wanted particularly to be on that committee because I thought it would be fascinating to learn what our intelligence capabilities look like, and it has been fascinating. The other thing I like about the committee is it's a lot less partisan than a lot of the other committees because it's, it's behind closed doors, it's not in front of the television cameras, and I think people in general do their work properly there. So how is it possible that the Senate Intelligence Committee has been able to carry out its responsibilities in a bipartisan or nonpartisan way, and the House Intelligence Committee has really struggled with well, that. Well, we don't have Congressman Nunez on our committee, <laughs> which may be a reason why. And I, I just, I, I think there's just been a, more of a tradition in the Senate of trying to carry out these responsibilities we, in a bipartisan way. We don't do it perfectly, but, um, but it's it's one of the reasons why I like to serve on it. So, Senator, with with that as background, let me ask you what a Bennett administration's foreign policy would look like. What would its priorities be? What would our posture in the world be? What would be its ideological underpinnings? How do you think about that? Uh, the ideological underpinnings, to start there, is that democracy is a virtuous way of organizing human beings and that the best thing we can do for people like my mom and my grandparents uh, is be the best democracy we can be to show the world that pluralism is is a normatively beneficial way for human beings to organize themselves. It's particularly important with the rise of China for us to embrace those democratic values. That's not the same thing as saying we should be exporting democracy around the world. But but I do know from my parents' example what what an important beacon of light this country is when we are tr- we're not perfect, but trying to live up to um, to our founding principles. So that's sort of the overarching thing. Underneath that, I would say making sure that we burnish alliances all over the world. So you know, the first visit I would make if I were elected president would be to Europe to say. We are here to defend Western democracy. That's why I'm here. We're back. That we're back. We're with you. We don't view you as some sort of liability, but together we have to push back on Russia, on China. You know, where I think Trump actually was right to call the question on China. He just did it in an utterly counterproductive way. We share equities with almost other every other country in the world with respect to China. We, it's a colossus, and it's going to grow. I mean, think about this. It is its economy has quadrupled since 2001. It is tripled since 2004. It's doubled since we went into the Great Depression or Great Recession. And they're going to continue to grow. We want those markets open to us 
And we can build a forceful coalition of trading partners to say, China, we want to sell into you and we want you to do a better job of following the rules of the road. It's not going to be easy to do that, but it does provide us a very important organizing principle and a reason to be working with other nations, which I think will lead to a more peaceful world. In our hemisphere, you know, we have seen what happens when you don't have real leadership on this immediate refugee crisis at our border. We could resolve that if we had a president who led all the countries from Canada to Argentina and saying, let's figure out how to resettle these ki- these people and then let's figure out what to do with the underlying causes of uh, of the misery in the Northern Triangle countries that are uh, resulting in people fleeing for their lives. And then in the Middle East, where I would start is to try to uh, rebuild the alliances that led to a successful negotiation of the Iran Agreement to see whether there's a piece of business that can be done there. In thinking about your foreign policy, what your foreign policy would be, is there a particular president, is a particular secretary of state that you, national security advisor that you admire for how they handled when they were in charge of the That's world? That's interesting. I haven't, I mean, I, I, I've never thought about it that way. I will think about that way. It's hard not to think of Franklin Roosevelt as somebody who um, who acquitted themselves very well in that job. Senator, one more question before we get to some specific issues. And I want to ask about the salience of foreign policy and national security on the campaign trail. It doesn't seem to be high on the priority list of the voters, certainly not the media. Is that perception on my part right? And if so, is that concerning to you? And how do you talk to folks about it? How do you get folks to think about its importance? How do you talk about all that? So I'd say three quick things. One, your perception is right. Although in every single meeting that I have, somebody asks, what are you going to do to restore America's alliances? And that's, I think, good news that people are worried about that and thinking about that and understanding that it comes at a cost for the, our country to turn our back on our allies. So I think that's that's point one. How do you get people to care or interested about it? Um, last weekend, Donald Trump spent the whole weekend tweeting out things that if anybody else in America tweeted out, uh, they'd be meet, meeting with the HR department on Monday morning. Yeah. And the HR department would be saying, if you keep doing that, you're gone. And if the answer to that from the person was, oh, don't worry about it. I'm a stable genius with unmatched wisdom. That would be it. You'd be finished. But because this guy is our president on that weekend, as he was obsessing with cable television and tweets, China was signing trade agreements with uh, enough economies that if you add it all up together, it represents half the GDP of the world. Iran was uh, uh, doubling the number of centrifuges they were using to enrich uranium at the same time he was doing that. So it's important for people to hear that because when they hear that, it makes them angry and aggravated about it. Or another example I like to use is the example of China. I just mentioned how how much their economy has grown in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, another way of thinking about that is in three years in the last decade, they poured more cement than we did in the 20th century. Uh, while we spent seven months horsing around with issues about $6 billion for Trump's wall that Mexico is supposed to pay for, China is building a vast uh, telecommunications network that stretches from Latin America to Africa, connecting to the surveillance state of China. 
uh, and also massively investing in in their One Belt, One Road initiative. This comes at huge cost to our position in the world and I would say to humanity's position in the world because if you're living in a world in Africa where if you get elected to office, you go to your, your you know, the party for your, for your election and then you go back to your office and there's a plane ticket waiting for you to take you to Beijing and we're absent, um, that's a problem for us. So those are some of the ways I talk about it. So one of the things that strikes me in listening to what you just said, Senator, is that a number of your opponents on the campaign trail seem to side with the idea that the U.S. should withdraw from the world, um, which is deeply concerning to me. And where do those where do those pressures come from? Do they come from the same place that our broken politics come from? They do. They do actually. They do because the what, what have we done with our broken politics? And there's an answer. Since 2001, we have essentially borrowed $5 trillion from the Chinese to give tax cuts to rich people. And we have spent, we borrowed another $5.6 trillion from the Chinese uh, to fight these wars in the Middle East. So that's 11 or 12 or $13 trillion that we, from the vantage point of the people that are struggling in the American economy, we might as well have lit on fire. And I'm not sure people know that exactly or precisely, yeah. but they have a sense of it. And that that coupled with the terrible disaster of the Iraq war, you know, has combined, I think, to create um, a caution about what it is we're doing in the world. And to me, that's completely understandable. The question then is, what do we do about it? I mean, so so Trump looks at the Iraq war and he says to himself, well, the Iraq war was emblematic of, I mean, he's not saying that, but he, right, right, right. he would say that's emblematic of American foreign policy for the last 70 years. Instead of understanding that the Iraq war was a departure from our foreign, certainly our most successful foreign policy over the last 70 years. And, but unfortunately, he's, the lesson he's learned from that leads him to a place where it's just, we're going to get out. So you look at something like northern Syria. I am completely convinced. I mean, this is after five years of fighting side by side with the Kurds to put ISIS in a box. We lost six guys, six guys over five years. That's a tragedy. Kurds lost 11,000 people. And that looks to me like a huge success to pick that as the one thing that we're going to retreat from because Trump can't stand up to Erdogan. I don't think there's a president in American history that would have made the decision that Trump did. And it's a reflection of how weak he is and how poorly he understands the lessons that were learned. So the American people deserve to have uh, a president who learns the right lessons from our mistakes as well as our successes. I spent some time this week uh, on the way back in an airplane on the way back from the West Coast reading the Ar- the, um, the Army College report on Iraq. I don't know if you've seen that yet, mm-hmm. but it's two or three volumes, hundreds and hundreds of pages that basically concludes that the only winner of the Iraq war was Iran. Right, and right. the part that I was reading was about all the miscalculations that were made. These are things the American people deserve to understand because in their name, Washington made terrible, terrible judgment. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Senator Michael Bennett. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So, Senator, I want to run through some specific issues. And the way I'd like to do this, if it's okay with you, is I want to toss out the name of a foreign leader and get your kind of gut reaction. And the reason that I want to do it this way is because as president, these people would be your counterparts, right? You'd be dealing with them. You'd be thinking about how to deal with them. So I think it's an interesting way to come at the issues. So let's start with Russian President Putin. Tyrant. Talk about him. So I, 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 he's running, he's basically sitting on top of, of a, a mountain of kleptocracy. And I think one of the reasons why Donald Trump has such a hard time with him is that he's more successful. He's been a more successful looter of his country than Donald Trump has been. Uh, obviously, he's acting in his interests and his interests are utterly conflated with the interests of the, of the Russian state. And Europe needs us to stand by them as their ally pushing back against Putin. They can't do it on their own. And he still hasn't been sanctioned for the for the attack on our elections in 2016, which continues to this day because we have a president who stood next to Putin in Helsinki and and explicitly took Putin's word over the word of our of the nation's intelligence agencies is reprehensible. Senator, you've you wrote a book of several months ago now, about Russia's disinformation efforts in 2016 and beyond. It's called Dividing America, How Russia Hacked Our Democracy. Why did you feel the need to write that? uh, Great question. Thank you for that. I felt the need to write it because I think the American people didn't really understand what the nature of that attack looked like, and I wanted them to be able to see it and be able to hold it in their hands. To me, the most discouraging thing about that attack was we actually didn't discover it for a year and when you look at the russian propaganda it's the most vile racist stuff you could imagine in part because they were seeking to divide us they saw our pluralism as a diversity as a weakness not a strength but i think it says a lot that it was completely unrecognizable to us from our own political discourse in other words what does it say about us right now when we can't distinguish between our political discourse with Russian propaganda that's meant to hurt our country and wound our country. So that's why I published it. And looking ahead to 2020, how aggressive do you expect the Russians I to be? I think they will be very aggressive. They, we, they've basically been invited in by the American president. And how would you assess our preparations as a government well, that's the for good, defending against that's that? That's the good news. I think that um, without going into any detail about it, I, I believe we were much better protected in 18 than we were in 16 because of the work of our intelligence agencies. And they are continuing to work. They're on the mission, whether the president, you know, agrees with what Putin, you know, what they said or not. They are on the mission. The threat is evolving, it's changing, and it's not um, confined to Russia anymore. Uh, other countries are trying to assault our democracy as well. And think about this, Mike. I mean, just for for the listeners, you know, who might be saying, I don't really care about this. This isn't. Imagine living in a world where you can't be sure that the result at the election at the voting booth is the actual result that happened. I mean, when that happens, our democracy is going to be, could be at an end, and it could happen 
to us and to Western Europe at the same time. This is the this is the nature of the threat that we're under, and that's why, you know, the fact that McConnell has been so unwilling, Mitch McConnell, to pass election protection legislation that uh, would help us make more resilient our hardware and software at the local level, so we can protect our our. Uh, the ballot box uh, is really problematic. In fact, there's bipartisan bills. They're all bipartisan, as and, far as and, I know. And why the reluctance? Be- that's a great question. You would think the people in Kentucky would want to have their elections protected. I think he's just trying to protect Donald Trump, who doesn't want to ever admit that the Russians interfered uh, in his election for whatever reason. But certainly the most benign explanation for that is that he doesn't want the American people to think that he got an unfair advantage because Putin helped him win. So our next leader, Xi Jinping, how do you think about him? I think about him as somebody who's playing a very long game. Uh, and uh, and I also think that uh, Donald Trump has misplaced, misplayed his hand on the trade deal in, in a way that she, it could be said that the that our next election may, may, may rest in his hands because he is now in a position to make a decision about whether he grants Donald Trump a victory on trade that gives him something to go back to our farmers and ranchers with who have been so abused by Donald Trump's trading policies or not. I think Putin and Xi both would like to see Donald Trump reelected because they have been able to enhance their roles in the world as a result of Donald Trump being elected. And to paint us as a failing democracy. And to paint us as a failing democracy. And four more years of that is probably really good from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And um, and whether we like it or not, we are, we are in a contest with China for the future of the world. And they are acting like that, and we are not. I mean, we're not even showing up. We got a guy in the White House who doesn't have any idea what he's doing in foreign policy. They know exactly what they're doing, which does not mean they won't make mistakes, but we shouldn't count on that. So you said earlier that you do give the president some credit for calling the Chinese out on some of the anti-competitive practices yeah. that they that they pursue, but that the president hasn't gone about taking them on on that in the right way. What would you do? What I would do is mobilize the rest of the world whose interests, I think, are completely aligned with ours. I mean, Asia. I mean, the countries in Asia have no desire to be dominated in a unipolar world by either China or us. They'd much rather be in a bipolar world, and we give them that opportunity. Africa, they've got – China is everywhere in Africa, but, but they're, they're entering into these debt deals with, with countries as they are in other parts of Asia and other places – that have turned out to be quite damaging, you know, where China ends up owning the port. We, I think, are in the position to come in and sweep in after that. And there is a desire. I was in eight African countries in the year before I decided to run for president. There's a strong desire for us to show up there uh, and in our own hemisphere, I think. So So I actually believe that um, when we think about the contest with China, we don't need to think about them as our enemy. There's not a reason to do that. But I do think it, it provides a very clarifying way for us to think about the world and how we advance our interests of the world, democracy's interest in the world, and the free market system. You know, it's useful, and we should be thinking about that in a coherent way. And there is no way that 330 million people can outcompete the Chinese 
or even compete with the Chinese without allies around the world. It's the only way we can do it. And I think we should look at that as a positive uh, because it can lead to peace. As you know, we did have a set of allies who came together and were prepared to say to China, you know, you can have more influence in the world. You can play more in the world if you follow the rules. But we threw it away. It was a Trans-Pacific Partnership. Would, would you go back to something like that? We've got to do something. I think that that failed in part because we, there was not, we didn't, there was no political predicate in our national politics to support that agreement. People didn't see it as a national security um, uh, agreement. They didn't see it as something that was important for our geopolitical uh, standing in the world. And we have had a lot of you know, negative effects of trade as well that we have not as a country responded to. And I, and I believe that we've got to sort of simultaneously respond to that dislocation and at the same time say, we're not closing ourselves off from the rest of the world. And not only that, that we've got an important geopolitical role to play in Asia um, to push back on Chinese dominance there. So two more people, real quick. Supreme Leader of Iran. He has been strengthened by the Trump administration, as have the hardliners in Iran. Uh, Our walking away from the Iran deal uh, was like uh, jumping out of a lifeboat just because we didn't like it when there was no other lifeboat in in sight. And I think the Iran deal represented um, uh, a rare attempt of us trying to manage a situation in the Middle East rather than go to war with it. When Trump ripped up the deal, our intelligence community assessed that Iran was more than a year out from from right. from breaking out to nuclear weapon, which was a big improvement from being two to three months away, which is where they were when we signed that. And deal. we were heading towards two to three weeks at the pace they were. That's moving. right, exactly. And why does that matter? By the way, for the listeners, it matters because if you have two to three weeks, it's very hard to mobilize the rest of the world to push back. Uh, you may end up in a place where it, Iran is forcing you to make a decision whether to unilaterally attack or not. And when you've got a year, you can do the planning that's required to actually have an intelligent and strategic reaction. Um, I think the Supreme Leader and um, and the hardliners in Iran have, have been extremely successful in um, creating a regional hegemony since we invaded the Iraq War. That, that report by the war, the war College that I mentioned earlier um, – concludes that the only winner of the Iraq war was Iran. I share that view. And I think they have, they have their malevolence in the region and the danger that they pose to our national security and to Israel is real. Um, and it's significant for us to push back in it. Having said that, they have successfully moved into Yemen. They've successfully moved into southern Iraq and actually even parts of northern Iraq have incredible influence in Syria that they didn't used to have, still have the influence in Lebanon that they've always had. And that's very concerning to me. Um, And unfortunately, part of what Trump has done is um, I think he's strengthened, as I said, I think he's strengthened the the hands of the hardliners because the hardliners didn't want to do the Iran deal to begin with. And they said that we would break the deal. And in fact, we have broken the deal. And what have the Iranians done recently? They showed the whole world that they could hit the Saudi oil infrastructure with a degree of precision that nobody knew they had. And that's causing everybody to have to think about um, uh, how we react to them. And 
it's it's another reason why Donald Trump has to be a one-term president. So what would you do vis-a-vis the Iranians? I think the first thing to do would be to try to reestablish the alliance that made the Iran deal possible. It was an alliance of the P5 plus one. You know, it was critical to have China and India as part of that. And it, I wouldn't necessarily say we have to sign exactly the same deal, but but I, but I it would be good for us uh, to tr- try to flex those muscles again and, and, and build that alliance. These guys are very, very dangerous customers in Iran. One more name, Senator Kim Jong-un. I mean, I obviously, he's, it's very hard to tell what his personal capabilities are, but I think he's played Donald Trump for a patsy. I mean, you know, he, tr- tr- Trump has accepted on face value uh, Kim's uh, statement that, I mean, he didn't even really make a statement that he would denuclearize, but the idea that they would denuclearize, which they've said in the past, but they've never actually done. And what has happened since they had their, was it Hanoi where they had their meeting? Yes, yes. You know, where, where basically Trump said, um, you can sleep well at night on his way back from there. He, that's what he tweeted out. Basically, what's happened is he's, whether he knew it or not, he's created a cover for, for, for Kim to, begin, to, continue, to continue to pursue um, his nuclear program and his missile program, which he has done. He, there has been no halt in doing what he's done. done. And that's damaging to us. So I once again, it would be foolish for people to think that these other countries are not pursuing their national security imperatives from their vantage point, from their point of view. They have they may have notions that are completely contrary to ours, whether you're talking about Russia, Iran, North Korea. Uh, it would be fair to say they are completely contrary to ours, but they are not incoherent. And the incoherence that we are projecting uh, is creating a danger for the world. You know, for most of the last 70 years, uh, we, we obviously have not been perfect, Iraq, Vietnam, but for most of the last 70 years, we have been a force for stability in the world. We've been a force to t- sort of try to tamp down the storm. Now, in a way, we are the storm, yeah. and other people are taking ser- serious advantage of that. Putin, yeah. China, North Korea, Iran, they have all benefited from having Donald Trump as our president. Senator, you've been fantastic with your time. Oh, um, thank you I so want to much ask for you having me. One okay. more question. Um, I'm wondering if you've given thought, and I'm sure you have, to a couple of the really tough jobs of being president. As commander-in-chief, ordering young women and young men into harm's way, and then having to call or write to parents or spouses or children who have lost a son or daughter, husband or wife, or parent. How do you think about that? I've thought a lot about that. Um, I've thought a lot about that because even in the job that I have today, you know, once or twice a week I write a letter to somebody who's lost their who's lost their loved one um, in service of the United States. And um, I, I, I believe that, that that ultimate sacrifice we need to make sure is worth people making. And if it's in service to our democracy, in service to the idea that we have inherited something very precious in the history of humankind from our parents and grandparents, from the people that founded this country, uh, that is our obligation to pass that off to the next generation. And that as long as we're doing that, the service people that die defending this country and our interests will not have died in vain. That's why I think it's so important that we have 
a new president at the end of the next election. Senator, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. That was Senator Michael Bennett. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.